0: Recorded sound, I think, sees us reach the second in what I and nobody else is calling the triumvirate of recording. Pictures, sound, and the moving images. Like the photo, sound offers us a way to record humanity. The result of sound is that for the first time in human history, we can hear what people in the early 20th century sounded like with their voices recorded for prosperity. We can hear what people around the world sound like and we can hear their culture and music. Simply being able to record sound has led us to be able to listen to the greatest songs and stimulated whole new audio industries. The invention of recorded sound has resulted in some of the greatest pieces of music being written and recorded. Think of a world without any type of popular music. With recorded sound you can hear some of the most inspiring speeches spoken in the 20th century and most importantly you can listen to this podcast. This is also the first episode where Thomas Alva Edison plays a large part. We've somehow managed to reach this episode in the entire series with barely a mention of him. The middle of the 19th century was awash with new forms of communication. Recorded sound was just one part of that. The electric telegraph, a story for another day, was sweeping across the west of the United States, sending messages around the US and the world. Thomas Edison was one of the many who saw the telegraph as a profitable opportunity. Inventing in the 19th century was not really an intellectual pursuit, it was one of practical trial and error, and much frustration. With the telegraph in its infancy, there was much money to be gained by simply improving and tinkering with the technology there was a lot of money to be made from sending messages further and increasing the capacity of the telegraph. Some thought the telegraph could be used to send voice messages. Charles Bersall of France tried many times in 1854, but he failed. Many thought it was impossible. It was actually invented by an amateur, Alexander Graham Bell, who got there first, just about, and managed to invent the telephone. Again, a story for another day but may have been experimenting with the ideas, and all sorts of experimentations into the telephone and electrical currents were going on. It should come as no surprise that with the invention of the telephone, people wanted to start recording these messages. Thomas Edison wanted to get into this area too, and when he opened his Menlo Park Lab in 1876, he wanted this industrial research facility to produce a stream of inventions for commerce or industry. Edison knew a lot about the telephone and the telegraph, and he knew how to turn sound into mechanical movements. Edison was well known for the depth of his researching, turning inventors from the trial and error approach into what we might now consider genuine research. He read German scientists, obscure telegraph patterns in European journals, and the work of Leon Scott of France, whose phono autograph is where we get the oldest known recording of a human voice. It works by using a stylus attached to a membrane diaphragm to trace out the undulations of sound waves on a cylinder covered with smoked paper. The earliest known recording was of Scott singing, and it sounds like this. It might not be great, but remember, it was made in 1860 and there's something pretty incredible about that. In 1877, Edison directed his workers to experiment on several projects related to recording this sound while he worked to improve on the telephone. During the summer of 1877, he took time off from his telephone experiments to work on recording sound, thinking businessmen would be the first to use this recording of sound to replace communication by written word. You could send a voice member of yourself To others in the office, or anywhere with a postal address. In July 1877, Edison and his staff rigged up a system where the indenting stylus connects to a diaphragm, which in turn was connected to a telephone speaker. As Edison shouted into a speaker, a strip of paraffin coated paper was run underneath the stylus, which, when examined, showed irregular marks made by sound waves. When the strip of paper was run back under the stylus, Everybody was in disbelief when they heard the faintest sound of Edison's shout a few moments before. In the words of Charles Batchelor, Edison's chief assistant, it was not a perfect recreation, quote, but the shape of it was there, and so like the speaking that we all let out, a yell of satisfaction, and a golly it's there, and all shook hands. Close the next day Edison wrote in his diary that he hoped to be able to store and reproduce automatically the human voice. It took until late 1877, when a laboratory of workers made up a working phonograph. The phonograph still only faintly recorded the human voice, but it was there. It was demonstrated at the office of the Scientific American on December the 6th, 1877, and it became something of a craze. People in their droves flocked to the small room to listen to this reproduction. The acclaim it received, like many inventions, was perhaps not as groundbreaking as many at the time thought it was. There were many steps along the way before this process in all areas of science and research, but putting it together and marketing recording sound so well meant that in the popular consciousness this is when recorded sound was invented. Whereas Scott had made a tracing of the sound waves. As they vibrated the diaphragm, Edison went one step further and noted that the sound could be reproduced to create the sound once again. Alexander Graham Bell said, quote, it was the most astonishing thing to me that I could have possibly let this invention slip through my fingers, Close Bell must have been astonished because he was one of those who knew how sound actually worked. Yet, this tinfoil phonograph was not perfect. It had little commercial potential, and Edison, as perhaps the most commercially minded of all inventors, said it was, quote, an invention pure and simple, Close Edison saw the device as something to record incoming phone calls, an answering machine as such. Problems existed that stopped it becoming a commercial machine. The tinfoil could only be used two or three times before it became unusable. The sound quality depended on the even turning of the crank. Even a slight change in speed distorted the sound too much. The whole system is simple, it just takes a lot of skill and effort to get it right. The telephone was a profitable and useful invention. The photograph was a fun toy. There was still much work to be done, including sorting out the material and format. The revolving disc record in which sound waves were incised in a spiral on the flat surface of the disk. During the winter months of 1877 to 1878, the workers at Menlo Park worked hard on improving the talking machine. The project was delayed because Edison was constantly busy. Soon after, in 1878, he was working on the electric light, which was thought to have far better commercial potential. The work fell to Alexander Graham Bell, who saw commercial potential in sound recording. Together he and his cousin Chichester Bell and Charles Tainter got together and the three investigated the idea of sound recording. It seems odd to us now how something as brilliant as recorded sound could not be seen as commercially viable but if you think that all something can do is record loud shouts and play it back a few times before it's gone it sure doesn't sound very appealing. It takes a person of vision to have seen the potentials and potential ramifications of recorded sound to take it to the next level. Alexander Graham Bell and Charles Tainter tinkered around with the phonograph and managed to improve it somewhat. They renamed their invention the graphophone. We have an early recording of the graphophone with Bell recording his own voice. You are voice. It was a vast improvement on the phonograph, and they were able to get a patent for their machine. They proposed a joint venture with Edison to improve the technology, but Edison was not into that, and so vowed to return to the machine that had made him famous. Edison finished off the construction of a large lab in New Jersey, and after it opened almost instantly showed off an improvement to the phono or the graphophone. This wax cylinder arrangement was powered by an electric motor rather than a hand crank. The recording and reproducing diaphragms were joined together. The operator shouted into a small horn and the vibrations of the diaphragm moved the start tip of the recording stylus. After it had been made, the stylus could then move onto the cylinder and the user could listen to the recording with an ear tube connected to the device. After a refinement in 1888, Edison announced he perfected the phonograph. Edison would often make announcements that he made a commercial model, but it was a smokescreen as many others around the world who once made the telephone were now trying their hand at recorded sound too, especially as Edison's patents in the United Kingdom had not elapsed. Meanwhile the Gramophone was another variety. It used a disc rather than a cylinder and it was powered by a hand crank. It was in 1889 when the talking machine patterns started to proliferate. Edison wanted it to be a dictation machine by businessmen, while Bell and Tainter had similar ideas in their plans too. There was a problem with the use of the phonograph. The fragility in the grooves of the metal foil from the process of recording meant that metal strips could be deformed. Oberlin Smith thought that using metal strips, which could be altered by the influence of sound waves without actually touching the metal could work best, but this was never tested. The acoustic method, rather than the electric one, would be the way sound was recorded for 50 years. By 1880, the technology had gotten advanced enough so that Alfred Lord Tennyson could record his famous poem, Charge of the Light Brigade, and make it just about audible. The phonograph was invented to save telephone messages. And it opened up a few commercial uses soon after. A talking machine could be used to replace letters and the cylinders sent through the post. A paperless office before the computer and the internet. Edison had already changed the office. His other inventions, such as electric light, telephone and typewriter, were changing how the office worked. Edison was thinking his invention, like the sewing machine or gun, would be mass-produced by making idealised standardised parts and assembled by menial workers. This, of course, when the United States was becoming the great industrial power, replacing the United Kingdom as the great manufacturing and innovative nation. Edison had seen how inventors had started companies to capitalize on their inventions. Alicia Gray with the Western Electric Company to make the telegraph, Bell and his Bell Telephone Company, while Emil Berliner, who had invented the gramophone record had started his own gramophone company, so Edison set up his Edison-speaking company. There was immediate need for talking dolls, speaking cash registers and in amusement arcades. Some companies were set up to market machines made by others, such as the Columbia Phonograph Company. By the 1890s, most cities had a phonograph company. There was a monopolisation in much of the 1880s, with Jesse Lippincott wanting to form a monopoly. He managed to buy out Bell and Tainter, and bought the rights to sell Edison's phonograph, and so controlled two of the major forces in the business. But this business was a disaster. The manufacturing encountered many issues, while the sound quality was still an issue for the many typists that had to transcribe them. By the 1890s, businesses started to go bankrupt, And in 1893, the US went into an economic downturn that lasted five years. It affected all businesses, not just the traditional ones, but also the new technology companies and huge corporations like General Electric and Westinghouse. The bright future in 1877 for recorded sound faced ruin in 1893. But of course we know recorded sound survived. The phonograph still had a future and rather than for business use, the entertainment and value of the phonograph was still there to be explored. The evidence for that could be seen in his first demonstration by Edison. Edison had begun to market the travelling phonograph exhibitors, where a phonograph with 50 pre-recorded cylinders was able to be listened to by 15 people at a time. The sounds were either vocal, instrumental or other entertainment. This move to entertainment was highlighted by the coin-operated machines for arcades and the like. A nickel in the slot and pick whatever you want to listen to. Even at the height of a depression, people still wanted to be entertained. This entertainment proved popular that it was quickly picked up and spread throughout the United States. The machines were extremely popular and easy money, with the owner only having to take out the money and leave it for the rest of the day. With the success of this model, it was soon realized that people wanted to listen to pre-recorded cylinders. And so Edison quite quickly changed his business model to find that the record business could be highly profitable too. There was money in supplying the recorded cylinders. Edison set about working out how to mass produce the cylinders. He conceived of a two-stage approach. First, he would make a master copy and produce a negative of the master cylinder by electroplating a layer of metal onto the wax. The negative could then be used to create exact duplicates. The theory was easier than the practicalities. It was not just about making the cylinders, but making them cheap enough so that millions could be made inexpensively. At the same time, Emile Berliner was following Edison's lead and making standardized discs. In 1888, he prophesied the coming of the record business. But as he made his wax cylinders, it was a very low sound quality, and so sales were low. In 1896, Berliner's gramophone company employee, Alrich Johnson, was working in New Jersey, trying to develop a successful gramophone and wax record. Johnson by himself worked to improve the wax recording. He came up with a solid wax disc and the result was a far better product, and much louder even than Edison's cylinder. By 1900, Johnson and Edison were ready to start mass production of the duplicates. Johnson said that his process was, quote, and mentioned that it was to revolutionise the talking machine industry, close quotes. The commercial value was instantly seen, with prices going from $2 to $0.50. Cents. The 50 cents records only cost 7 cents to make. The talking machine business was about to take off. The result of this was the big three of the phonograph business. Columbia, formerly part of Lippincott's empire, Edison's company and Victor, formed by Johnson. The three would dominate the business with their patents. Each company had a chain of dealers who would sell the phonographs and the difference in records. Meant that it was unlikely you would find more than one company's records in the store. One of the most important parts of choosing which company you wanted to buy the phonograph from was their choice of records on offer. By 1910, the average store needed about 5,000 records to keep competitive. The three all had different marketing techniques. Edison used his own name and so called genius in his advertisements. While the Victor Company used a small dog called Nipper, listening to a recording from the horn of a gramophone. Called his master's voice, this image was put all over the world, and made Nipper iconic. As in all things, technology moves on, and in 1900 Thomas Lambert of Chicago patented the use of celluloid as recording material. Columbia started to use the material, and because it was patented, it put Edison under pressure. Not only was it more durable, but it also lasted longer. The two-minute records Edison used needed to be improved upon, and so in 1908, the four-minute cylinder was brought out. The amberol Cylinder had a better sound quality and clarity for the listener. The reproduction even now still sounds good. The labs of the Big Three had made such progress but it was believed that soon it would be possible to record more demanding sounds. A few recordings by Italian opera singer Enrico Caruso in 1902 marked a milestone in the history of recorded sound, and it was arguably the first good music ever put to record. Caruso's recordings start a long line of music myths about the recording business. An employee of a gramophone company was sent out to Italy to record some ballads. Fred Gatesburg. Caruso, and so offered him the opportunity to record. Caruso wanted $400. The company refused to pay it, but Gaysburg went ahead and paid him anyway. Caruso, with his use of emotion, new for opera singers, and his tenor voice, which sounded better on the still limited recording technologies that available, marked a major milestone in the history of the phonograph and music. <laughs> we first person to ever tour based on the performance of his recordings. Caruso was the start of pop music. Caruso went on to sell many records and opened the floodgates to people like Nelly Melba, who he met on the episode on the radio. Melba was arguably the biggest music star of her generation and gave the talking machine new respectability. Soon after, composer Umberto Gordano worked with Caruso And the dollars started to flow in. The Red Seal label that originally recorded Caruso also changed the business model. Rather than 50 cents for a disc, these recordings could command five dollars a disc. The other change was that before the most prominent name on the record was that of the company. Now it was the person on the recording. The stars were promoted and signed to exclusive contracts with the recording company. Looking back now, it would seem obvious to us that the star would be the most important part of the record, but Edison genuinely thought it would be the sound quality, and the public would prefer a bad singer recorded well than a good singer recorded badly. But market economics proved him wrong, and so Victor sold a huge amount of records, and Edison had to change his mind. Great singers became the way record companies sold their records and so became subject to lucrative contracts, with Caruso getting $2,000 a year, so he would only record a victor. Reproduction of music was quite quickly seen as a replacement for the piano in the house, which was still a facet of many houses all over the Western world to fill a hole for entertainment and music. The piano, of course, didn't disappear, and it still surprises me how many pianos you see in people's houses. I mean, there's one in my flat too, but I never play it. The use of recorded sound meant that it didn't matter anymore if you couldn't play Rachmaninoff or sing like Caruso. You could have them play and sing in your house far easier than the years of practice it would take to get to that level. 1900 to 1920 saw the age of the talking machine, with millions of Americans rushing to buy a talking machine for their front rooms. There was little else to challenge it as the primary form of passive entertainment. The big three had sewn up the market with massive production of machines and recordings. Each company had contracts with well-known singers and begun what we would now call the record industry. The competition between the three companies got more and more intense, with vociferous legal battles between the three companies over the patents. The three represent the apogee of American big business, with high profits, high volume, and low-cost production, with a national network of dealers. The three, however, face a bigger issue than steel or oil sellers. They are in constant competition for the newest and hottest talent. Still, in the early 20th century, despite America being the centre of technological world, Europe still owned the arts and therefore the war delayed and disrupted both the spread and production lines of the manufacturers. The war did spur growth in national music markets with a particular penchant for patriotic songs. But cabarets and music halls were shut and many local entertainers were in the trenches. So listening to the phonograph became one of the few ways to get entertainment. Meanwhile, the importance of the product meant that it was now classified as a home necessity. From 1914 to 1918, the value of phonograph sales rose 500%, for a simpler reason than you might think. Not the wall, but in 1917, most of the patents for the phonograph had expired, meaning that there were 18 companies in the recorded sound business in 1914 and 166 in 1918. This opened up a whole new range of competition with companies bringing out a range of cheap alternatives and sourcing records from other private companies and selling them cheap. By 1921 sales slumped for the big three. It resulted in Columbia going bankrupt and the market becoming saturated. The only hope now to save many of the ailing phonograph makers was in the records which were still increasing in sales. The companies were tasked ever more with influencing and matching the tastes of the public. Smaller companies were at a disadvantage as the big companies had tied up all the stars, leading the smaller companies into trying to find the new stars and find new music for the people. In that, they found jazz and blues. It's entirely possible that jazz could have remained and still remain a part of New Orleans culture that stayed in New Orleans. It just so happened That, as it was developing, it met at the precise time the industry was flooded and looking for a new sound to sell. This rise of jazz coincided with a relative level of economic prosperity in the South and the migration of many black Americans to northern cities. It wasn't long after that long lines outside record stores on Friday paid day showed what an important market, the American black market, had now become. The first blues record was of a young black singer called Mamie Smith, who sold it on the O'Care company in New York and recorded a song called Crazy Blues. It sold 7,500 records a week and reached 70,000 sales overall. The success, even amongst white audiences, pushed for the first black American record label and a scramble for black artists. What this showed. Was that now it wasn't the phonograph that mattered, but the records available. Crazy blues sounds something like this. from not being able to record the S sound well or recording the cello or violin, while the drums were basically banned due to their loudness and the piano was very difficult to record. The first engineers were recorders and they were often responsible for deciding what to record as they knew what sounded best. The banjo and xylophone were heavily used due to its ease to record. Early recordings were of the voice by presidents And versions of famous speeches. The difficulty in recording orchestras meant that the early phonograph was used a lot for music hall and comic reasons, not for art. Vaudeville's shows, mixed of humor and song, meant it was very good for early recordings. The comedy of the music hall translated well into monologues, comic songs, and sketches. Ethnic humour was popular in American homes and a large number of early recordings can be described as what were called coon recordings, where white artists portrayed black stereotypes in monologues and songs. It wasn't just blacks, but Irish and rural people too who were joked about. In the late 19th century, a hit was measured by its acclaim on stage, and the amount of sheet music it sold. This was centred on the mythical and legendary Tin Pan Alley in New York. Home to the songwriter and musical journeyman, it churned out sheet music and would later be famous for the number of standards it produced. But the First World War revealed how much the record companies were still reliant on European talent, especially for singers. The consequence of this was that in the 1820s, America was to get a music form of its own, something completely different to what was in Europe. Its rhythm, tempo, and content a very American art form in itself. The Jazz Age hit America in 1920. The Jazz Age started the resurgence of black American culture and their relationship to music. After the near century of white domination of music in the public consciousness, since the release of the minstrel song Jump Jim Crow in 1828, which gave its name to racial discrimination following the Civil War. I'm not going to read out some of the names of the songs released in 1920s America, but it doesn't take a creative genius to work out what type of titles the so-called Kuhn recordings would include. Early minstrel songs led to the development of ragtime music. Ragtime was a piano music and called off a craze in 1896 of the amount of ragtime sheet music published in that year, leading them to be called rags. Despite piano being difficult to record, the syncopated rhythms of ragtime slowly became called dance music and later infused jazz. From minstrel to ragtime, the recorded sound led to popular music. But minstrel humour was still alive well into the 1920s, with the film Jazz Singer released in 1927, containing Al Jolson in blackface. But it did prove just how popular black music had now become. The most famous of all the Ragtime songs was Alexander's Ragtime Band, first appearing in 1911, and written by Irving Berlin, Hymn of White Christmas fame. He was one of the first Jewish songwriters of Tin Pan Alley, whose co-opting of black music and culture turned it into contemporary American popular entertainment. Alexander's Ragtime Band sounds something like this.
1: Oh, my honey. Yes. And a honey. And let me and a... Uh, ain't you going? Where are you going? Ain't you going? Where are you going? To the radio, Sam. music, man? Oh, my honey. What? Oh, my honey. What? Let me take you to Alexander's Grand Sam. Ain't you coming along? Alone? Oh, come on in here. here. i like you here. Come on in here. here. i like you to hear. Alexander's Langston him. Oh, let come on he oh, let the best in the, in the hand. Hand. Can't you plead if call like i never heard the move? Why, so natural that you want to go to war. let just, just get stand, stand by, him. by him. How How hand. Hand. Come on along, along. come on come on let me take you by the hand. Up to the up to the up to the man, up to, hand. Hand. Up to, up to the man, who's the leader of the band. And I would like to hear the corny river playing in the right time. Come on in right here. I'd like to hear Alexander's right down there. Come on in here. I'd like to hear Alexander's right down there. Come on in oh, here. Come on in here. Come on in here. It's the best band in the land. Can I play the little ball like i never heard before? Why, oh, so natural that you want to go to war.
0: as it was first called, has of course a long history, which is the subject of many books in and of itself. But jazz was primarily focused in New Orleans, but variations could be found throughout the South. Early jazz records were recorded in New York or Chicago, and so are no longer thought of as how it was played in early New Orleans music halls. Livery Stable Blues was the first jazz record commercially released in 1917 but it was diluted and commercialised and intended for white audiences. Furthermore, it was released by the original Dixielang jazz band, an all-white group, and it sounded something like this. Jazz on record was also limited by the three minute limit of the recording technologies of the time. Blues too was limited, as it was often improvised, and often went on longer than three minutes but blues found itself easier to adapt to this three-minute limit. In 1925, a trumpeter who had been up and down the United States recorded nearly 60 songs between November 1925 and 1928. This has been called one of the most significant bodies of work in American music. The trumpeter was Louis Armstrong. I can't play any Louis Armstrong due to US copyright laws that prohibit works entering the public domain if they're released after 1924. But you can just go on YouTube or Spotify and look up West End Blues to see the rapid improvement in recording quality. These songs were not sentimental but danceable and intended to be danced to. This new music revolutionised the 1920s. The bunny hook, turkey trot, grizzly bear and foxtrot were the rage of the age. And a couple of years later the Charleston appeared. Jazz had not really bothered people much but now on record it was available to all and for all to dance to. Some called it jungle music as it was seen as a challenge to the establishment and to good taste. But the fact that this talking machine was now seen as dangerous, exciting and pushing boundaries gave it the new lease of life it needed not just a part of people's lives, it was now a vital part of culture and lifestyle. Jazz became a symbol of the age, and it was due to recorded sound. For the first time, and certainly not the last time, it would prove that recorded sound was one of the most important technologies to the lives of the young. It should come as no surprise that it took the use of technology for America to find its own sound, and to move away from European ideas of good culture. The coming of the radio devastated the phonograph business. The music was free and during the 1920s the use of radio for music increased so much so that there was a strong decrease in sales of records and sheet music. But the sound quality of the radio was nothing compared to that of the talking machine. And as radio technology improved, so did the phonographs. Electric amplification was the key. Initiated by Western Electric, they uncovered new knowledge about sound in electrical currents. Electric recording gave them much better sound and it was louder too. The record companies were impressed by this new technology, but not impressed enough to start using it immediately. But as the radio cut ever more into their market share, they had to take the risk. Betty Smith recorded the first major song in 1925 using electric recording methods, while Victor was the first to mass-produce an electric talking machine. It was an instant success. With a large order book it made $7 million on its first year on sale, while the technology also allowed for the big three to make phonographs with radios built into them. So by the end of the 1920s, this was pretty much standard. The use of electrical recorded sound also enabled the synthesis of moving pictures and recorded sound. After much development of Western Electric, they were able to sync moving images and recorded sound together. I'm not going to spend too much time in this area, as we'll get into it in more detail on a future episode. But safe to say, despite the words of Harry Warner in 1925, chief executive of Warner Brothers, who said, Who the hell wants to hear actors talk? Close quotes. The talking movie was a great success. The first talkie was the jazz singer with Al Jolson in blackface. It was an unprecedented success and effectively made all silent films outdated. Fifty years after editors invented, recorded sound and moving images were matched up. The Wall Street Crash caused a massive decline in the sales of phonograph Records. The hardest hit were the sales of black artists, as the black population was the hardest hit by the depression. Black music suddenly became underground, and Bessie Smith went from commanding $3,000 to $50 a recording session. The money was now in radio. A cheap radio set provided all the entertainment you needed, and by 1933, 60% of all American homes housed a radio, and they listened to it 5 hours a day on average. The growth of radio meant a consolidation of media properties, with media companies wanting to own radio stations and phonograph and record companies. The 1930s started the interconnecting of mediums. Songs needed a lot of promotion, and this was done by promoting it on radio and in movies. The development in technology meant there was a change in the voice needed for broadcasting. You didn't need to belt down the diaphragm anymore. Electrical amplification meant that softer, mellow voices could be broadcastable now. Bing Crosby could now croon down a microphone, showing the development of recording technology. Crosby also showed the new mode of being a multi-medium star. He was on movies, on stage and in the recording studio. Far from being enemies to each other, the huge media conglomerations had become allies. RKO Radio was part of the RCA Music Empire, which included the NBC Radio Network and Paramount Film Studio. It was during the depression where record companies realised that the young were the most important market for their records. Despite taking several hours of work to buy even one disc, they still bought music. And by the late 1930s and early 1940s, it was swing music they were buying. The new customers for this music were called Bobby Sox's. In 1940, Billboard began its best selling retail records, which counted the sales of recordings. The advent of this showed that the industry had recovered from the depression and records, particularly swing, were now selling by the millions. Despite the Second World War and the US government using many of the recording industry's factories, the record companies still pumped out patriotic songs and it provided a great stimulus for the industry. It also resulted in a court case. As the amount of men sent off to war meant they couldn't perform live in radio studios to broadcast, so radios wanted to instead play records. And, after a series of court cases, it was ruled that property rights to recorded music ended when the record was sold. This opened up an entirely new job, the disc jockey during the 1940s, 75% of all American programs on American stations were from records. Over the next few decades, it was in the movie business where most of the next great developments were made. From the building of loudspeakers to fill for huge movie theatres, to the small and grudging improvements in recording techniques, it was in the movie business where the first three-way speakers with a high, middle and low frequency system was divided it only became standard practice in the music business in the 1960s. One important development, especially in music, but that the general public had, during the 1930s, no real useful, was a long player record disc. This was especially vital for the movie business, as it was vital a film was more than three or four minutes long. Over the start of the 20th century, labs started to increase the length of time on a record from 7 minutes in the 1920s to 10 minutes to match the duration of film by the late 1920s. Edison announced a 40-long minute record in 1926. The 12-inch disc was not much used though as it was quiet and couldn't reproduce higher frequencies. Without a long playing record, record companies began to pack several 10-inch and 12-inch records together and they called it an album. Hence why, when a long player record disc was developed, collections were still called albums. They hoped that classical music fans wouldn't mind this, as they could change the disc over to listen to a different symphony. The Second World War brought about much new technology, a lot of which was subsequently commercialized. The magnetic tape recorder, technology taken from the defeated Germans, along with other technologies, allowed for a revolution in sound by the 1950s. This was especially needed as the post-war economic success of America did not translate to success for recorded sound, Whereafter, record sales slumped again after 1945. Another new technology introduced around this time was vinyl for records. In addition to being hard enough to take the record groove and very durable, it would not absorb moisture in humid conditions. The toughness of the material meant more grooves could be pressed into them. To achieve a 30 minute playtime, the grooves had to be half a mile long and pressed at 224 to 260 grooves per inch. The introduction of vinyl meant that record companies instantly needed a good new library to sell. In 1948, Columbia announced the LP record to the public and marketed it as a revolutionary device. Meanwhile, in 1957, Sony of Japan began its production on the transistor radio, which enabled younger people to listen to music on the go. The transistor also reduced the cost of the talking machine. In 1961, transistor phonographs were introduced, with an amplifier, tuner and turntable all in one small square box, making it portable and far easier for teenagers and young adults to carry. Despite recorded sound changing the music scene and promoting various genres of music, it wasn't truly until rock and roll came that something revolutionary did come from recorded sound. This 88 technology had seen some revolutionary music before. But rock and roll was the most influential popular music of the 20th century, and a harbinger for larger change in society. The end of the Second World War, and a new generation, the electrification of not just recorded sound, but also guitars, changed the sound it was now possible to make and reproduce. The developments in magnetic recording and the microgroove disc, along with other technologies, made it easier for smaller, independent companies to thrive. As we saw in the episode on rock and roll, this provided a change for a larger variety of music to cater for more specific tastes. Rock and roll made stars like never before, get a hit single and you instantly became a celebrity. Hollywood stars were remote and mysterious. The music star was an ordinary person. It should be noted that phonographs and records became a worldwide phenomenon and it was Europeans who first saw American jazz as art. And it was the British youth who most idolised American rock and roll, I think far more than the American youth, who by 1960 had almost forgotten all about it. As the 1960s moved into the 1970s, and nearing the 100th anniversary of the original invention, the music industry looked in impeccable shape, with annual sales in the billions and expanding quickly. But the basic invention had not changed at all. It was still a talking machine, with a stylus running along a groove, and reproducing the sound modulated onto it. Despite small changes and incremental improvements, such as the LP and stereo recording techniques, lots hadn't moved on. The reel-to-reel tape had its supporters amongst audiophiles, but it wasn't as easy to use, and so perhaps was never going to be a popular way to listen to music. But when the Philips company invented the compact cassette for audio storage and introduced it to the world, things would change. Only 9,000 were sold in the first year, but the Philips compact cassette became the gold standard for tape recording by the end of the decade. The cassette tape was small enough to carry around and fit in pockets and could hold 55 minutes on each side. The quality initially was poor, meaning it was mostly used for home recording, but eventually Like the revolving disc, the technology improved. From the decade following its introduction, the cassette improved enough to match, and according to some, improve on the disc. It allowed for portable stereo players, and the boombox, which could blast out sounds at 120 decibels, the same as a jet engine. Like 20 years earlier, and technology allowing for rock and roll to come into its own, the cassette played a crucial role in the development of rap music. It began in dance halls where the DJ would talk over the record. Rappers started to develop sounds by playing one song over the other. They slowed it down and speeded it up and used the turntable as an instrument. Rap was like music in generations gone by. It was local and underground and DIY. The cassette tape allowed for an easy way to record over other songs, enabling what we would now call sampling. The cassette led Sony to bring out the soundabout, which they later renamed the Walkman. The Walkman too was the first to really capture the public consciousness, as it was a lot cheaper than its first iteration. Sony sold 50 million in the decade after its introduction, and copycat sold lots too. The Walkman is significant for what it represents. It made music personal and portable. The popularity of the Walkman meant the cassette tape would become the dominant form of music for much of the rest of the century. Soon after the introduction of the cassette tape came another compact audio storage device. Working together, Philips and Sony helped to produce a commercial disc, which they named the Compact Disc, and in 1981 showed it off to the audio industry. The introduction of the CD began a new era in recorded sound. Instead of a stylus travelling along the groove of the vinyl record, a laser beam read binary code. The only similarity it had with the vinyl player was that it was circular and rotated. With the CD, there was no scratching noises, no pops, tape hiss or background noises. The sound quality was revolutionary. The CD had 75 minutes of sound that could be stored and it was easy to skip over songs or play them at random especially with the use of a remote control. The other benefit was that it played without deterioration. Unlike table vinyl, there was no degradation. Adaption to the CD was slow, and by 1990 there were still 90 million turntables in use in America, compared to 20 million CD players. But the other benefit of the CD was that it could be used with the personal computer, and with nearly every computer Coming in the early 1990s with a CD drive, it showed what truly was the future. The use of the computer in recorded sound marked the greatest development since the original invention of the phonograph itself. The mix of home computing and world wide web resulted in a complete sea change in everything in recorded sound, other than that of the central concept, that of recording sound itself. The ability to burn CDs from a computer and share music over the World Wide Web was a revolution. Apple told people to rip, mix, burn, and if record companies thought this was the worst thing possible, they had no idea what was to come. Not only with the World Wide Web could you share recorded sound, you could download songs without paying for them. Napster was the first, one of the biggest revolutions in web history. Instant access to free music was the type of thing consumers would love. Rather than blame the consumer, it was the fault of the record companies who wanted to keep their old business models and punish people for doing what was natural, even if they were normal law-abiding people. Businesses should follow the consumer and meet their demands, not the other way around. Computing enabled ordinary people to do much more with sound. In the early 90s, Rob Glazer, a Microsoft employee, left to improve transmission of digital music files over the internet. In the early 90s, surfing was slow, and with the MP2 encoding system, it took 30 minutes to download a song. Glazer invented real audio, so it could compress the file. Real audio quickly became the most downloaded program on the web. As we saw in the episode on LSD many tech enthusiasts even in the early 90s were still idealists not corrupted by money or corporatism and glazer was the same they didn't much care for copyright and piracy these people had a motto the information wants to be free when rob lord and jeff putterin started to post songs from their garage band on the internet they formed the internet underground music archive to make indie music available and found people all over the world interested They used MP2 to compress the files, but when Justin Frankel started to develop Winamp, a program that could read MP3, he released it free of charge, and it would lead to the rapid adoption of MP3. This led to the setup of MP3.com, where indie bands could post their songs, and it became a popular free place where any band could post music free of charge and get attention. Sean Fanning at Northeastern University saw the idea to develop a peer-to-peer exchange of files. This was a new approach, it wasn't indie bands but any music was now to be shared. The site was Napster and set up in 1999 the peer-to-peer exchange had enormous consequences. It created a community and massive public library of sound and as the internet got faster it became possible to download more and more songs. It got to 50 million downloads before it was shut down. It is estimated that 73% of all college students in the US use Napster at its height. I wouldn't feel too sorry for the record companies however, as they reacted by pushing up the price of CDs, and the big five were later found guilty of violating antitrust laws. The record industry claimed Napster was taking money away from artists, but artists had been claiming for decades that record companies didn't even pay them what they were owed. Despite Napster, there were still no standalone MP3 players that could take downloaded music and keep it and play it like the Walkman. There were attempts, but none were really that good. The big five record companies, Warner, BMG, EMI, along with Sony and Universal, all worked through a primitive form of streaming for the internet. They charged $10 a month for 100 songs, which sounded like a lot considering students and others had just gotten it for free. Then the change everybody was looking for arrived. In 2001, a revolutionary new product arrived on the market. Let's hear it from the man himself.
2: The, The field that we decided to do it in, the choice we made, was music. Now why music? Well, we love music and it's always good to do something you love. More importantly, music's a part of everyone's life. Everyone. Music's been around forever. It will always be around. This is not a speculative market. And because it's a part of everyone's life, it's a very large target market all around the world. It knows no boundaries. But interestingly enough, in this whole new digital music revolution, there is no market leader. There are small companies like Creative and Sonic Blue. And then there's some large companies like Sony that haven't had a hit yet. They haven't found the recipe. No one has really found the recipe yet for digital music. And we think not only can we find the recipe, but we think the Apple brand is going to be fantastic because people trust the Apple brand to get their great digital electronics from. So let's look at portable music. Let's look at the landscape. The first thing, if you want to listen to music portably, you can go out and buy a CD, uh, CD player, right? That's one way to go, about 15, 10 to 15 songs. Or you can buy a flash player. Go out and buy one of those. You can buy a MP3 CD player, or you can buy a hard disk-based jukebox player. These are the four choices for portable music right now. So let's take a look at each one of those. A CD player costs about $75, holds 10 to 15 songs on a CD, that's about $5 a song. You can go buy a flash player, pay about double that, about $150, holds the same 10 to 15 songs, or about $10 a song. You can go buy an MP3 CD player, and an MP3 CD, uh, which you can burn on your computer, costs about $150, but holds 150 songs, so you get down to a dollar a song. Or you can go buy a hard drive jukebox player for about $300. It holds about 1,000 songs and costs about 30 cents a song. So we looked at this and studied all these, and that's where we want to be. That is where we want to be. And we are introducing a product today that takes us exactly there, and that product is called iPod. What is iPod? iPod is an MP3 music player. Has CD quality music, and it plays all of the popular open formats of digital music: MP3, MP3 variable bit rate, uh, WAV, and AIFF. But the biggest thing about iPod is it holds a thousand songs. Now this is a quantum leap because it's your for most people it's their entire music library. This is huge. How many times have you gone on the road with a CD player and said, "Oh God, the CD I didn't bring the CD I wanted to listen to." To have your whole music library with you at all times is a quantum leap in listening to music.
0: Apple's iTunes was brought out not long after, charging 99 cents for a song for over 200,000 songs. Within a year it had sold 100 million songs, but iTunes is so 2008. Music and technology has moved on. Nobody I know buys music anymore. Most people don't download or even torrent it much anymore. Even I don't torrent music anymore. Cheap legal streaming has defeated pirates and iTunes. It started with Pandora Radio, a personalized radio station allowing you to customize your own radio station. SoundCloud launched in 2007 and Spotify in 2008, a freemium service allowing for unlimited streaming with ads for the free model, for almost any song out there. This was followed by Apple service in 2015, showing that for now at least, streaming music will be the way forward. If you were to ask me, where do we go from here? The next move will most likely be in the quality of recording. I can listen to a Beatles song of the 1960s, and it doesn't sound too different to the current songs of today. It's recorded in better quality, and it all sounds slightly clearer, but there's been no great steps forward in quality or immersion. On YouTube, you can hear 8D recordings, which attempt to make the music sound more real. It's not amazing, but it does succeed in sounding more immersive. Imagine a great leap forward where we can hear sounds as though we were in the recording studio, and as if the band were playing for us. Make it feel like a band is playing in your living room. This should be the step forward. Audiophiles with their thousands of pounds invested in music tech may get close to that experience. But for the average consumer, it's still a long way off. And if you've seen anything, great tech should be about bringing the expensive to the masses. Music is now so easy to get, we've taken it for granted. Recorded sound should take the next step forward and make it sound more immersive. The introduction of recorded sound has had a huge impact on the history of music and culture. Despite being important in the dissemination of events and information, it has utterly transformed music. Before recorded sound, everything had to be heard live or replayed using musical notation. But you can now hear music, that most wonderful of things, exactly the way the composer wished you to hear it. We've talked about inventions allowing the democratisation of tech. The Kodak camera allowed for everybody to take a photo. Recorded sound meant there were no limitations on hearing the greats. Mozart, Beethoven, Louis Armstrong all the Beatles can be heard by all. Music has so many subcultures and regions. It has become global and local and not elite or poor. You may have noticed the introduction music sounded a bit different listening, but it has been remastered into 8D to try and get that immersive sound. Whether you think it worked or not is a different matter. But listen to the outro and let me know what you think. So for all the obvious benefits, joys and emotions that sound brings us, it is listed at number 66 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.